0: is a thing and one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five star review also perhaps even more effective than that you can share our podcast with a friend we hope you'll take the time to do so thank you so much god bless amen all right this morning we are picking back up with our series through the book of joshua our chapter for this week is chapter 6 of the book of Joshua, and what we're going to do is split it up into two parts. So your notes contains the entirety of the chapter, verses uh, 1 all the way through verses 21, but we're going to focus our attention today on verses 1 through 5, and then we'll come back and look at verses 6 through 21, Lord willing, next week. So for today, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 5 in their entirety. When I finish reading that text, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, at which point I would appreciate very much if you would respond by saying thanks be to God. One final time, our text for this Lord's Day is Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says this, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because the people of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of favor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days everyone straight before him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. We'll go ahead and dive in. Let's focus first our attention on simply verses one and two of our text. One thing that's helpful as way of introduction to provide some context is that this is a discourse taking place between Joshua, who is Moses' successor in Israel. He's Speaking at this moment with Jesus, Uh, we believe that Joshua is speaking with the better Joshua, Yeshua, the true and ultimate eternal deliverer of Israel, not merely Israel according to the flesh, but true Israel, the church according to the promise. And so we have Joshua, the Israelite, successor of Moses, speaking with the better Joshua, Yeshua. We know this because of the end of the previous chapter, the end of Joshua chapter 5, where Joshua is encountered by someone dressed for battle. As we saw two weeks ago, uh, his sword is not only at his side in the scabbard, but his sword is unsheathed. His sword is in his hand. And Joshua is terrified by the sight of this individual. He asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? The answer from this individual is not neither. I am neither for you or for your enemies, but rather he simply says no. And we are meant to assume The implication is that the answer no is in reference to the latter portion of Joshua's question, are you for our enemies? And so what is being said to him is that this individual dressed for battle, who is glorious in stature, mighty in power, is for Israel and against their adversaries. And this individual, we believe, is not an angel because Joshua uh, pays homage to the individual. He actually falls Uh, prostrate before him and worship. And this individual instructs Joshua, commands him to remove his sandals because he is standing on holy ground. Uh, An angel would not say this uh, because it would be blasphemous for an angel to instruct uh, worship that is due only to God himself. Also, an angel would have rejected Joshua's worship Because again, this would be blasphemous for a mere created angelic being to receive worship that is rightly fit only for God alone. We also know that this is not only not an angel, but it is also not a mere man. We know that it's not a man because if it were a man, Joshua would have detected this and would not have offered worship. So Joshua would not have worshiped The the individual, if it were a man, and the individual would not have received worship had it been an angel. And so what biblical scholars believe is that this is a theophany, or you could say in this case, perhaps a Christophany, uh, that this is the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament pre-incarnation. So this is Jesus being physically manifest in human or angelic form, he appears as a man. He has two arms and two legs. He's dressed uh, for battle. He has a face with two eyes and two ears, a nose and a mouth. And so it's human form, but not literal physical human flesh. And Jesus did not come in the flesh until the, uh, the incarnation, until Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit and gave birth to Jesus. And so this is not Jesus incarnate, Uh, But Jesus is eternal. He is the second member of the Godhead. So there is a real time in human history where Jesus took on human flesh, where he took upon himself a second nature. In addition to the divine nature, he took on the human nature. There is a time before Jesus took on human flesh, but there is not a time before Jesus. I'll say that again. There is a time in human history before Jesus took on flesh, but there is no time before Jesus. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 14 says, In the beginning was the Word. And not only was the Word God, but the Word was with God. That means that it's not merely speaking of God the Father, but there is someone else with God the Father, and that someone else who is in the beginning with God the Father, he himself is also God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. and We have seen his glory. And so we know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that just like the Father, he existed as a most pure spirit without body, parts, and passions all the way up until approximately 2,000 years ago, at which point, by the power of the Spirit, and through the Virgin Mary, in addition to being the divine second member of the Trinity, a most pure spirit without body parts and passions, he also took upon himself a second nature, the human nature. This did not replace the divine nature, but merely concealed the divine nature. And this is why we see in Philippians chapter 2, where it says that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped but rather emptied himself. He humbled himself, taking on the likeness of man. That text is easily misconstrued, misinterpreted. When the text says in Philippians 2 that Jesus did not count equality with God, that is God the Father, as something to be grasped, the better rendering is something to be clinged to. So what is being said is not that equality with God the Father was out of Jesus' reach because he existed eternally, but as an inferior being to the Father. No. Rather, equality with God was not something out of his reach that he could not grasp, but rather it was something he always eternally possessed, that he was equal to the Father. And therefore, because he knew that he is equal in majesty, divinity, and worthiness of worship, he did not cling to that equality, but he was willing to let it go as it were. Not in the literal sense, but let it go by being concealed in the human nature. So Jesus has always had eternal equality with the Father. And that's one of the things that you can detect when someone is actually an equal, when someone is actually, truly worthy of honor and dignity and respect, uh, is that they don't behave in ways that are insecure. Jesus was willing to take on the human nature, concealing the divine nature, and in that way, not in a literal sense, but optically, appearing as though he emptied himself. He did not actually, in the incarnation, empty himself of the divine nature. Rather, it merely appeared as though the divine nature had been removed because it had been concealed. So, as Augustine once said, that Jesus is divinity wrapped in flesh, This is, on God's part, in a sense, we might say divine trickery. That Jesus, the divine, now wrapped in flesh, the divinity served as the hook, and the flesh served as the bait. And the serpent went hook, line, and sinker, taking the bait, not seeing the hook, not realizing that all of his prodding and tempting towards the crucifixion was actually sealing his own demise. That Satan actually destroyed himself, thinking this is the one moment in history where Jesus, the Son of God, is now vulnerable, but not realizing that the divinity of Christ was still there, fully intact. And that by seemingly conquering Christ, he actually did precisely that which would seal his ultimate doom. And so, Jesus is always, has always existed. He is eternally begotten, not made, but eternally begotten. He has always existed as God the Father and as God the Holy Spirit, that is, as a most pure spirit without body parts and passions. That said, in real time in real human history, there is a moment in the incarnation where he not replaces the divine nature with the human nature, but adds to his divinity a second nature, namely the human nature. And in that way, there is simply not the literal sense, but the the perception of an emptying of the divine nature, not because it's actually going away or being removed, but because it's being concealed by the flesh, by the human nature. He is divinity wrapped in flesh. So there's a little bit of theology proper, Trinitarian doctrine, Christology for us. Now that being said, there are moments in the Old Testament which precedes the incarnation where Jesus actually appears to people. And the end of Joshua chapter five is one of these instances. And he is appearing in human form, but he is not human in this moment. Uh, this is before the incarnation. So Jesus was not incarnate multiple times. Jesus took on flesh one time. And this is before the incarnation, before him taking on flesh. So he's not literal flesh and blood at this moment when he appears to Joshua, but he is manifesting himself Uh, to have a physical, human-like appearance to Joshua. And again, what we saw at the end of Joshua chapter five is that Joshua worships him, and he actually commands him to do so, to take off his shoes, because the ground in which he and Joshua are standing is holy ground, and this ground is not made holy by Joshua's presence, but by Christ's presence. And so, if he were merely human, Joshua would not worship. And if he were merely angelic, Joshua's worship would have been rejected. So we believe that this is God, that this is God. And more specifically, this is Jesus, the second member of the Godhead. And this is where we pick up in the beginning of chapter 6 today. We see this discourse between Joshua and Jesus, a discourse between Joshua and Jesus Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord, speaking to Joshua, physically manifest before him, says, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. The Lord, Jesus Christ, is saying to Joshua, this is a confirmation. This is a sign, an infallible sign, that that Jericho has been rendered to you, that you will conquer, that you will be successful, that you will be victorious. The sign in part, we could say, is the fact that the Lord is standing in front of Joshua, saying that I am for you and that I am not for your enemy. And that would be a confirmation sufficient in itself But the Lord Jesus goes beyond the confirmation of his presence, which is enough. The presence of God is sufficient. But he goes beyond that and says that my presence standing before you and speaking to you is not the only confirmation that Jericho has been rendered to you, that you will be victorious and successful over Jericho. But the other sign, the other confirmation that Jericho will be defeated is that Jericho is shut up inside and outside. what the Lord Jesus is saying is the fact that that their walls of defense and all their entry points and all their gates and all their people were walled up inside the city that this is a sign that the city was in terror. And as we've seen already throughout the book of Joshua, the last five chapters, Not only is fear a sin, according to Scripture, but fear is oftentimes, in addition to being a sin, it is a sign of God's judgment. It's a sign of being underneath God's condemnation, underneath his judgment. We know that fear is a sin because there are multiple texts throughout the Scripture that say that explicitly. Be anxious for nothing. But with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And this is not just saying, uh, uh, offering a suggestion. Uh, fear is, is not pleasant, and therefore, because I would have you be at peace, because peace is far more pleasant than fear, therefore, do not be anxious. Well, that, that is true. Fear is not pleasant, and God is incredibly interested in our welfare, in our good, in our peace, our joy, our happiness. God cares for us, and he doesn't want us to torment ourselves with things that are harmful to us. But that's not all that the scripture is saying. It's not merely suggesting this is bad for you, this other thing would be in your best interest. But by saying be anxious for nothing, what the scripture is offering us is not just a suggestion for our welfare, but a command. And to forego that command is in fact therefore sin. Sin. If we are commanded to be anxious for nothing, then to be anxious for anything is to disobey God's command, and therefore it is a sin. And so the scripture is clear that we are to be anxious for nothing, that to fear is to sin. But beyond fear merely being a rejection of God's commandment, disobedience, and therefore sin, fear also, as I've already said, signifies an individual or a group of people being underneath God's judgment, especially when the fear is irrational. And that's what we see throughout the book of Joshua. And we'll see it again in further chapters that as the people of Israel, the nation of Israel comes against their enemies. um, Oftentimes what happens is that their enemies, their hearts are melted like wax, that their hearts and spirit give way to fear. And irrationally so, that when the spies are sent out ahead of time and they they find lodging in the house of Rahab and she hides them from the men of Jericho so that they might escape with their lives. One of the things that Rahab says to these Israelite spies is she says, I want to make peace with you. I want to offer a treatise. I can't speak for Jericho, the city as a whole, but I'm speaking for my individual family. Would you spare us? I'll hide you and ensure your well-being, but in return, would you spare us when you conquer the city? See, in Rahab's mind, it's a foregone conclusion that Jericho will be conquered. And that begs the question, why? Why is Rahab so confident that Israel will be victorious and that Jericho will be destroyed? Well, she says explicitly her reasoning, and the reasoning is she says that her own people, the people of Jericho, there is no spirit left in them, that every man's heart has melted within him like wax, that they've come underneath a irrational And it being irrational, we might even say a supernatural fear, a supernatural fear. And so giving in to fear is always a sin and not always, but often beyond merely being a sin. It is a sign of judgment that God has handed someone over to fear, an irrational fear, a supernatural fear that signifies their condemnation. And this is what we see. And so the angel of the Lord, being Christ himself, the Lord himself, is saying to Joshua in this moment, you have nothing to fear. Jericho is as good as conquered. It is, in a sense, already accomplished. You can know this. You can take it to the bank, so to speak. Why? Because for one, my presence with you. But two, you can look to Jericho and see that they have been completely overwhelmed by fear. And the sign of this is that the whole city has been shut up, in and out. No one is allowed to come into the city, and no one is allowed to leave. Now, what does that signify? The fact that the, the city is completely shut up, with no one being able to enter or no one able to leave. In your notes, I've written the following. Jericho could not put its trust in the courage of its own people to take the offensive. It's completely shut up. No armies are being dispatched. So rather, it chose to trust in the strength of its walls to provide a sturdy defense because their hearts had melted like wax with fear, they do not have the confidence or the courage to place trust in their own people to mount an offense. And yet, they do still trust in their city, in its walls, to mount a sufficient defense. Now, what does this show us? What does this reveal? Well, in the midst of terror, Jericho, still placed trust in itself rather than the Lord. And so Jericho was shut up. It did not possess the courage to deploy an attack, but neither did it possess the humility to offer surrender. None went out from the walls to offer a treaties of peace with the armies of Yahweh. In one sense, their hearts were melted like wax with fear, But in another very real sense, their hearts were also hardened to their own destruction. So is the miserable state of all those that strengthen themselves against the hand of the Almighty. Now what I want you to see is two things being simultaneously true. In one sense, their hearts are melted like wax with fear so that they are not willing to open the gates to send out armies as an offense they're not willing to mount an attack. This shows Jericho's fear. In the same sense though, as fearful as they are, they're still arrogant. So they're completely subdued by fear and yet simultaneously proud, arrogant, and stubborn. The fear is in the sense that they will not mount an offense but merely are hiding behind the walls. The arrogance is revealed in the fact that not that they won't send off armies to attack, but they won't even send a single individual to make a treatise for peace. See, rational fear, and this is how we know that it's a sign of God's judgment, that it is an irrational, we might even say supernatural fear, because rational fear, for one, would say we're a juggernaut in the land of Canaan. We have high walls, high towers. We have artillery. Uh, you, you automatically have a disadvantage if, if you're the army that just got done wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I mean, think about that. That's not exactly the high ground. If you've been wandering around in the wilderness eating manna and, 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 and you don't have weapons of war, and now you're going to mount an offense, you're going to be the one who takes the initiative to attack and the person that you're attacking or the group of people, have um, they haven't been wandering, they haven't been on the go like nomads, they, they, they haven't been you know going around in, in temporary spots but they've been living here for generations, they've built up a kingdom, they've built up walls and towers and they've fashioned swords and bows and all these different things Uh, that individual or that group of individuals would be the ones with the high ground, with the advantage. So for them to be fearful in the first place is an irrational fear. But it becomes exponentially irrational to be afraid of, of an adversary, in this case Jericho being afraid of Israel, but to not offer any terms of peace. If someone were to be rationally afraid, they would begin to make concessions. That's what a rational person would do or a rational nation. They would say, we're, we're beaded, we're bested, we're out of our league. You certainly have the advantage, which Israel did not, not from any practical standpoint, but you have the advantage. If they actually thought that, that would already be irrational. But assuming that for a moment, a logical person would insist you have the the the, the high ground, the place of advantage, you are superior, we are inferior, and so would you please spare us? What are your terms for peace? What do we need to do to ensure that you will not utterly destroy us? But Jericho doesn't do that. And that's what the Lord is speaking to Joshua in the first two verses of our text. He says, "'See, see that I have given Jericho into your hand "'with its king and mighty men of valor.'" The, the sign, the confirmation that Joshua is being told to look at that confirms that Jericho is, in fact, defeated is the fact that they are not offering an offense to attack, but in the same sense, they're not offering treaties for peace. Not willing to open the gates, not one single door on the wall being opened, completely shut in, No one can come in, but also, notice it's significant, no one can go out. Jericho's not just walling up and closing the gates so that Israel can't invade, but they're also walling up the city gates so that no one in Jericho can go out. And and in that, that's not allowing anyone in Jericho to mount an attack, but it's also not allowing a single individual in Jericho. Perhaps there were other Rahabs, is what I'm getting at. What if there were other families that would have gone out like Rahab, but instead of offering a treaties of peace for a single household, might actually offer a treaties of peace to the armies of Israel for the whole city. But Jericho hedges against that. Jericho says, no, no one is allowed to come in, the Israelites invading. That's the defense. That's the fear Right? We're not going to send out an offense, but in the same breath, also no one in Jericho is allowed to go out, to go out to do what? To go out to make war because we're afraid and we know we'll lose, but also to go out and make peace. So what we're seeing is that Jericho simultaneously has two postures of heart. fear, not willing to attack, but also pride, not willing to surrender. Fear, not willing to attack, but also pride, not willing to surrender. And so it is with all who stubbornly stand against the power and the hand of the Almighty. The position of Jericho is the position of every individual human human being apart from the saving grace of God. This is the posture, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, this is the mentality and heart posture of every unbeliever. That the unbeliever is fearful and yet at the same time, arrogant. This was the posture of Pharaoh. In Pharaoh, there was a sense in which he wasn't just stubborn and arrogant and prideful. There was also a sense in which Pharaoh was afraid. Pharaoh had seen Moses take down all of his magicians. And the power of Yahweh was superior to the dark arts and power of his magicians. And for the record, I don't believe that it was merely smoke and mirrors and sleight of hand. The devil is real. And I believe that these magicians in Egypt were performing supernatural works uh, by their allegiance with Satan and false gods. So it's not as though they were doing tricks, mere party tricks, but Moses was doing signs supernaturally by God. No, they were doing signs and supernatural works by the power of the devil, but that the power of Yahweh was infinitely superior to the power of the devil. And Pharaoh witnessed all of this. And there was a sense in which Pharaoh was afraid. And yet the headline of the story this isn't to say that there was no fear in Pharaoh, but it's simply to say that the headline of the story was not fear, but pride. That again and again, after each one of these 10 plagues, Pharaoh, instead of making a treatise for peace, because not because he wasn't afraid, not because he was confident, but that in the midst of his fear, he was also stubborn. Instead of making peace, he chooses to harden his heart. And we know that this is something that, on the one hand, Pharaoh consciously decides to do, and on the other hand, God supernaturally ensures that this takes place. God hardened his heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Both of these things are true. So Pharaoh is afraid in the one sense, but also arrogant and stubborn in the other sense. He's afraid because he knows that all the power of Egypt is inferior to the power of Yahweh, But he's also arrogant in the sense that he has ten opportunities to make peace with Yahweh, and yet he refuses. And so too it is with Jericho, and so too it is with every unbeliever. This is the heart state of every non-Christian. That in the one sense, they know there is a God in heaven. Romans chapter 1 says this explicitly. That God has revealed his divine power and eternal nature to all people. That he has clearly manifested himself by what he has made. So that all people are without an excuse. That every single person, all unbelievers, not just Christians, but non-Christians as well, they instinctively know that there is a God in heaven and that he is holy, holy, holy. And that they owe him their eternal allegiance and submission to his law. And the law of God is not abstract and it's not obscure. But the law of God, according to Romans 1, and then furthermore, Romans 2, has actually been written on their hearts, not just written on the hearts of Christians, but written on the hearts of all people. That because human beings are made in the image of God, they have, even as unbelievers, a conscience. They instinctively, internally know that which is right. They know that there is a God, that he exists, that he is eternal, that he is divine, that he is powerful, and that he is holy and therefore worthy of their worship. They know these things. They know that God deserves their worship, and they know that their fellow man deserves to be treated with respect and dignity. And yet, what they do is... Harden their hearts and lie and suppress the truth with deeds of unrighteousness. And this is not to say that the unbeliever is fearless. This is only to say that the unbeliever, while being stricken with terror on the one hand, is simultaneously proud and arrogant on the other. And I believe that in the case of individual unbelievers or in the case of a whole city like Jericho or in the case of a whole nation like Egypt, in each of these cases, it is a supernatural event. It is so irrational, there can be no explanation other than that which is supernatural. How is it that a person can be so afraid and yet so unwilling to concede? Those two things are at odds with one another. From a natural standpoint, fear, right, the, the absolute recognition and understanding that you're completely outmatched. That, uh, that outlook of I am outmatched and I am terrified, coupled with, and in no way will I surrender whatsoever. Right? Th- these are two positions that, that are at odds. They're they're a contradiction. And the only way that these two postures can simultaneously exist in one city or one nation or one individual is by a way of supernatural explanation. That there's more going on than just logic. There's more at play than just rationale. That at the end of the day, there's something spiritual in the works. The person knows that they're outmatched and yet the person is at enmity with God, hates God and can do no other. Romans chapter eight says that the mind of the sinful man, he's not just neutral towards God or indifferent towards God or uninterested in God, but the mind of the sinful man is hostile towards God. That is, he is violently opposed to God. He is at enmity with God. The text goes further in Romans chapter eight and says, therefore, he does not submit to God's law, nor can he. He is unwilling to submit to God's law, to his precepts, but he is not only unwilling because of his deep-seated hatred and enmity towards God, but he is also unable. That's the supernatural element that I'm speaking of. The supernatural element is that in the spiritual sense, the nature of man is incapable of doing that which he knows would be rational. So in one sense, he recognizes he's outmatched, and the logical thing would be to make concessions. But on the other hand, his spiritual moral nature His spiritual disposition is so hostile towards God, so at enmity with God, that it is not within his wheelhouse of choices because it's not within his nature to ever make any concession with the God that he knows will destroy him. And that's why the Bible plainly teaches that in order for someone to submit to God, in order for someone to concede, to bow the knee, but ultimately what has to happen is an overriding of his very nature. That it's not just that the person has to make a new choice, but the person has to make a new choice stemming from a new nature. That we must first be born again. That if any man is in Christ, he is what? If any man is in Christ, he's the exact same, but now making more intelligent decisions. no. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. He's actually a new creature. There is something that is in terms of not just his decisions, but his nature that has radically shifted. He has a new disposition. The reason why the Christian makes certain decisions that the unbeliever will never make is because the Christian is a new creature, a different creature than the unbeliever is. And so what first must take place is that we must become a new creature with a new nature. And then this new nature affords to us a wider spectrum of choices. And people humor themselves in thinking that we have as human beings free will. But we need to understand that our choices as finite creatures are drastically limited. And they're limited precisely by our nature. The reason why God has at his disposal more choices than you and I is because his nature allows for a wider spectrum of choices. This is because his nature is not creature but creator. His nature is not finite but infinite. Now even God in his choices is bound as it were. He is bound in the sense that he is bound himself by his word. There are certain things the scripture says God himself attests he cannot do. For instance, God is not a man that he should repent. Or some translations render it, God is not a man that he should change his mind. God cannot change. God also cannot lie. There are certain things that God cannot do because his nature is holy. That which he deems as holy in terms of his law directly stems from his holy essence, his holy being, his holy nature. And so even God with his nature, although infinite, one of the things that it precludes is sin because his nature is infinite, but his nature is also infinitely holy. But you and I as human beings, as finite creatures, we have a drastically more limited spectrum of choices because we have a drastically more limited nature. I've argued in the past, and I would continue to argue and hold this view, that the Christian has more freedom of will than the non-Christian. And this is because the Christian has, in a sense, not exactly, not precisely, but in a sense, The Christian has a wider spectrum of choices than the unbeliever because the Christian has two natures. The Christian, on the one hand, is a new creature in Christ Jesus, a new creation, with, with a heart of flesh, no longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh that is softened and malleable and receptive to the things of God. Spiritual eyes that see true spiritual things and spiritual ears that hear true spiritual things. And so the Christian, because of the new nature and because of the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, is able to choose certain things that the non-Christian can't because our nature allows for it. And yet the Christian at the same time is still able to choose certain things that the non-Christian can't, because the Christian still has a sin nature, but because the Christian still has the sinful flesh. And there is a theological distinction between the two. Perhaps the best way that I could describe this is like this. The non-Christian, if we think the inside and the outside. If we think of the inside for the non-Christian, there is the heart of stone in the sin nature. And if we think externally, on the outside for the non-Christian, there is the flesh, which Paul says in Romans chapter 7, sin resides within the members of my being. Sin still resides within my flesh. So for the non-Christian, internally they have sin, externally they also have the option of sin. The non-Christian, the only choice they have when they wake up in the morning is how do I want to rebel against God today? I can rebel against God by doing things because I made in his image and because of common grace. I can rebel against God by doing things which outwardly align with his moral will, but ultimately with a putrid hatred within my inner being against him, simply spiting him that I'm doing certain things that are truly good according to God's law outwardly, they're outwardly good in terms of the outward visible manifestation of my words and behaviors and actions. But even then, I'm not doing them with a desire for God's glory. And I'm not doing these things with a reliance on God's grace. I'm doing these things with, with a fantasy. Perception, a reliance on my own strength, as though I have any, and for my own glory, or at best, at most, the non-Christian can say, I'm doing it with a reliance on the collective strength of humanity, and I'm doing it for the good of humanity. One small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. But what the non-Christian can never say is that I'm doing this with a reliance on the power of God and a desire for God's eternal glory. And therefore, even when the non-Christian does outwardly that which aligns with God's moral law, it is ultimately filthy rags. It is sin. Whereas the Christian, however, can do that which contradicts God's moral law, that which outwardly is against God's commandments and therefore is sin, but At the same time, by the power of the Spirit which dwells within us, and with this new spiritual nature, a new heart of flesh, the Christian can also do things outwardly that align with the law of God and inwardly with the right motives, the right intent, with a true humble reliance on grace and a true godly glorious desire for God's praise, And so the Christian is the only one who could actually do something only because of the grace of God, not to boast in himself, but because of the grace of God and because of this new nature, the Christian is the only person that is capable of doing that which is not sin. But that being said, the Christian is also still capable of sinning because although we have a new nature on the inside, the Christian does not have a sin nature. That's what I'm saying. The Christian does not have a sin nature. For the record, right? I, I am a, a, a card-carrying Calvinist, probably seven or eight points at this at this juncture. I, I, five points is just its too soft. I've gone beyond it. I've upgraded. So I, I am about as Calvinist as you can get. However, even the, the most robust Calvinist should biblically acknowledge that a Christian is not totally depraved. Total depravity is not the Bible's description of a believer. It's not. Now, when the Calvinist says, even as a Christian, woe am I, a sinful man, these these are true scriptural statements, but not because they're totally depraved, and not because in the internal sense they still possess a sin nature, but rather as what Paul says in Romans chapter seven, that they still possess the flesh. So again, Inside, outside, using this paradigm. The non-Christian, inside, sin nature. Outside, sinful flesh. For the Christian, inside, new nature. But outside, in this life, still sinful flesh. That's why Paul says, again in Romans seven, sin still resides within the members of my being. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, I cannot carry it out. And, And the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing, oh, what a wretched man I am. And then notice what Paul says, who will save me from this soul of sin, this heart of stone, no, this body of death. Paul does not say, who will spiritually save me? He's already been spiritually saved. But rather what he says is, who will save me from this body of death? Paul is looking forward to the final culmination of his salvation, that is the glorification of his own flesh. That that one day he's going to have a new body. Another way that we could visually picture this theologically is that salvation is often referred to conversion. But in the technical theological sense, we should view salvation as a broader, larger, all-encompassing banner. And as it pertains, not to the cosmos and creation as a whole, uh, for our purposes today in this sermon, that would be too broad and complex to cover, but as it pertains to God-saving individual people, salvation is a broad banner, and there are three distinct key elements. There is justification, which we might liken to the salvation of the soul. There is sanctification, which we might liken to the renewing of our minds. And there is glorification, which we should liken to the redemption of our bodies. So the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, this is not his his lament as as someone who is pre-Christian before his conversion. There are some that interpret the text that way. And if you want to be like Theoden of Rohan and completely black-pilled and depressed for the rest of your life, then that's a great interpretation. Um, But I don't. I think it's not fair to the text. It's not true, first and foremost. And also, I don't like to be depressed. So I don't think the Apostle Paul is simply saying, hey, this is the state, the, the miserable state that I once had when I was not a Christian. But now that I'm a Christian, right, because the implication, if that's how you read it, pre-conversion Paul in Romans 7, then the implication by way of necessary inference is that now that Paul is saved, he no longer does the things that he doesn't want to do. Right. In essence, what I'm saying is that if you read Romans 7 as pre-conversion Paul, there's a very real sense. It's not a far leap to go from that to believing a Wesleyan view that there actually is a state of sinless perfection in this life which as reformers we would wholeheartedly reject. So, all that being said, salvation is a broader banner. There is a sense of conversion, salvation of the soul, justification. There's also the, same, uh, the sense of, of sanctification, the renewing of our minds progressively from the point of conversion to our final breath in this life, to the end of our life, being further and further progressively renewed by the word of God. Coming further and further in our thinking and our repentance to conformity with Christ and his precepts. And then there's also a future sense of our salvation that is glorification, salvation of the body. So, soul, mind, body, justification, sanctification, glorification. We might also say it like this past, present, future. If you're a Christian, God has saved you. Past tense you have been converted. you have been already justified. your soul is saved. You also in the same sense are being saved. Ephesians uses that exact phrase we are being saved. So there's all, there's a sense in which you already have been saved. it's done, it's complete. it's in the bag. that's justification. Your soul is saved, but you're also presently being saved. That is sanctification and the progressive, ongoing renewing of your mind. And then there's also a sense in which the Bible explicitly says that we will be saved, have been, are being, will be, will be, speaking to the body, glorification. And so, All that said, if you're a Christian, you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, then you already are justified. You are being sanctified. The soul is saved. The mind is being renewed. But the body is still waiting. Still waiting to be glorified. Still waiting to be perfectly redeemed and renewed to where there is no sin any longer residing within the flesh. So, one final time, the non-Christian, inside, bad, sin nature. Outside, bad, flesh. Christian, inside, good, not totally depraved. Inside, a new nature, a new heart. The third member of the Trinity, right? You might want to take that one home, that's a big deal. The Holy Spirit, indwelling you. So, inside, good, not totally depraved, no sin nature. But outside, per Romans 7 still flesh, and flesh that is not yet glorified, therefore sin residing within the members of our beings. That the flesh now, not internally are we against God, but we actually, in our inner being, we delight in the law of God, is what Paul says for the Christian. So the inside is changed, new nature, in our inner being delighting in the law of God, but on the outside still maintaining in our flesh certain proclivities certain temptations, inclinations, towards that which contradicts God's law. And that's why we are celebrating what God has already done in our justification. We are submitting and, and, and receiving what God is currently doing in our sanctification. And we are eagerly awaiting and longing for what God has promised that he will do in our glorification. And until that takes place, Until this life is over, then on the outside, externally, we still have the flesh, and the flesh has a certain sinful bent. Not always. We're not Gnostics. We're not against the physical realm. We're not against physical bodies. But we recognize that this physical body, until it is made new in glorification, has a sinful proclivity. So all that being said, The posture of the unbeliever, whether it be a nation like Egypt or a city like Jericho or just an individual person, the posture of the unbeliever is internally, because of the sin nature, they hate God. Romans 8, mind of the sinful man is hostile towards God. They cannot and will not. Their nature will not allow for it. It's not just that they're not desiring or willing, but they are actually unable to submit to God's law. They need to be born again. They need a new nature. So on the inside, at the internal level, because of the sin nature, the unbeliever is arrogant. He cannot and will not submit to God or make any concessions for peace. On the outside, because of the flesh and sin residing within the members of the flesh, he is also at enmity with God, but also finite, fallible, vulnerable, weakened, and therefore fearful of God's superior power. The non-Christian is fearful of God and possesses a putrid hatred of God at the same time. And this is all, in a logical, practical sense, opposed, contradicting, but makes perfect sense in the supernatural sense that the person, although it would everything in them logically would be, if God, if you're so outmatched, then concede. But the reason why they don't is because they can't. Their nature will not allow for it. So the picture of Jericho and its relevancy for us at multiple levels, but the level that I'm choosing to focus my attention on today is that the picture of Jericho is the picture of an unbeliever. That their heart is walled up. That they recognize that the principles of Christ have truth. They recognize that, that, you know, I mean, really what I'm describing, I'm describing today, I, I'm, I'm describing in some sense, a Republican. All right, like if I want to describe a Democrat, then I, you know, I just hold up a picture of a demon. But right now, I'm describing a Republican, a, a rhino, a mere conservative. Let the reader understand. What what I'm saying is this. There are many people right now in our culture who have seen the full extent of clown world and realize maybe that's not a good idea. And, And so they actually have some, because they've seen the terror of rebellion towards God, they logically and naturally have some fear of God himself and recognize that there needs to be some kind of concession some kind of of assimilation into God's principles. Uh, Christian, Judeo, whatever you wanna call it, which you've heard my spiel on that, that's an oxymoron, we're just Christian. We don't need the Judeo part. But that's a real popular sentiment right now, is let's just, you know, hey, um, the T and the Q and the I and the A and the plus, that's crazy. We're moral people. The L, the G, and the B. Well, that's that's reasonable principle pluralism. That's not a Christian position. And yet that is a a popular conservative position held by some who profess to be Christians. All right, we're going to cast out darkness with a lighter shade of darkness. That doesn't make any sense. That's everything that I've been laboring theologically up to this point. What I've been laboring up to this point is I'm trying to show you the complete illogical, irrational fallacy of being terrified on the one hand, knowing that you're outmatched, knowing that you desperately need God's favor, that a war against God is a war that no one will ever win. It is a suicide mission. And yet, in the other sense, to wall up the the, the city of your heart saying, uh, we won't mount an attack. Surely the principles of Christ is what our nation needs. Our culture is insane and lost its mind. But we also are going to wall up the city of our heart, not just so that we don't mount an attack against God because we need him and his principles in a general, universal sense, but we also are going to wall up the city of our heart so tightly that we won't allow anyone to go out and actually make peace with God to propose a treaty with God. So we'll adopt the principles of Christ, but never truly concede with the person of Christ. Never truly repent. Never truly call upon him by name. So we'll say that that the sexual mutilation of children is evil. But then we'll also celebrate if a third world country overturns a law against the L, the G, and the B. As though that's good. So, don't do this, but let's do this. When it's quite obvious that this is directly upstream of that. And all this as a conservative, right? With conservatives like this, who needs liberals? I mean, who needs progressives? I mean, the... (laughs) Right? I have Friends like that, who needs enemies? Right? We're fiercely going to fight to turn back the clock approximately five years and get us right back to where we are before you can even, you know, take a nap. Like, right? oh, wow, what a warrior, huh? What a champion. And it's like, how? Right? It's so illogical. It's so irrational. I'll tell you how. Unregenerate. That's How? The, the how, you're thinking just from a logical standpoint, how can you, can you see the wholesale rejection of Christ and, and, and how, how poisonous it is for individuals and cultures as a whole and valiantly stand against that and yet in the same breath adopt everything that's just an inch short of that and not actually submit to the wholeness of Christ and the goodness of all of his law. Right? M- meaning, how can you fear and yet at the same time be proud? How could you be like Jericho? Well, the way that you be like Jericho, a pagan city, a gospel city, is to not be born again. And there are many who profess the name of Jesus and who wave a conservative flag, which apparently is a rainbow, Just minus the transgenderism part. That's conservative these days. And they claim the name of Christ, they claim to be conservative, but they are not born again. They're not. When you you say that what God explicitly calls in His eternal word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, not just the New Testament, for the Andy Stanley fans, but the whole thing, the word of God endures forever. It endures forever, and in his law word, he says that when a man lies with a man, it is an abomination, and then you, as a professing Christian, and a bastion of conservative principles, don't call that sin an abomination, but actually call a nation upholding God's holy, perfect law an abomination. You say it's disgusting. That's a quote, right? Not not disgusting, meaning the sin that is unnatural, but, but a nation saying that it's a sin and saying that we're going to punish that sin as a crime because it's not just a private sin. It has the effects of cultural decay. And you say the... Ultimately, what you're saying is the sin is not an abomination. The law of God against the sin is an abomination. You're calling God's law an abomination, which directly stems from his character and essence and nature. So you're saying the sin is not an abomination. God is. And I'm a conservative? No, you're not. With conservatives like that, who needs liberals? With Christians like that, who needs non-Christians? And my point is to say that there is no such thing as Christians like that. I'm just expelling the, the thin veil of mystery this morning and saying, hey, with Christians like that, who needs unbelievers? Well, no, what's really going on is they're not Christians like that. They are unbelievers. They are unbelievers. Because there's not really the fruit of Christ, evident in their worldview and their policy and their convictions. And this is where we are currently as a culture. And our culture is made up of individual people because this is the heart of man that apart from saving grace, man, in the one sense, knows that God exists and is stricken with fear. His heart melts like wax. And yet, Simultaneously, in the same breath, his heart is melted like wax with fear, but also hardened like stone in pride. Jericho, out of fear, knowing that Yahweh was on the side of Israel, would not dare attack them. And yet, irrationally, would also not surrender. And so, God was righteous and just, to destroy them. This is not just the picture of an ancient pagan city. This remains the picture of every heart apart from salvation, apart from grace, which is found only in Christ alone. The last thing that I want to focus on for this morning is verses 3, 4, 5, which say, You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with ram's horn. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout and the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. In your notes, I've written this. The wicked Israelite spies who earlier said that Canaan could never be conquered because the cities were walled up to heaven was their exact words. These wicked spies would be forever silenced. The highest walls cannot withstand the power of God, not even the gates of hell, much less the walls of Jericho, but not even the walls or gates of hell will prevail against true Israel, that is the church. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 28 through 32. These are the ten wicked spies. Twelve in all were sent out. Two were righteous, Caleb and Joshua. But the other ten wicked spies gave a bad account of Canaan. Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Speaking of their walls, perhaps they saw this very city of Jericho and those very walls And these spies, these wicked, cowardly spies, they gave a bad report to Israel saying, we must not go up against them for surely we will not succeed. The walls are too great. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. And here we see in the sixth chapter of Joshua, his promise being fulfilled, that God would conquer Israel's enemies, that the Lord would go before them, that the Lord would fight for them, and that the bad and false report of these 10 wicked Israelite spies would ultimately not prove to be true. That yes, the walls were built to heaven, but that the walls would crumble because Yahweh was superior So the final thing that I'd like to leave you with this morning, especially in light of it being Father's Day, is this, to use a little bit of internet jargon, we don't want to merely take the red pill, we also want to take a white pill. What I mean by that is that there are many today who I think pride themselves. Some are Christian in name only, But some are genuine born-again believers that pride themselves in being in the know. They pride themselves in being perceptive, discerning. They have their eyes wide open. I know what's going on. I know about George Soros. I know about, you know, the World Economic Forum. I know about Fauci. And I know about the Bidens and I know about the Clintons, and I know about this, and I know about that, and I see this, and I see that. And I'm not saying that that when people say this, they're wrong. And I'm also not saying that this isn't helpful. It is good for us not to be naive. I advocate for everyone to take a red pill, as the kids say, a.k.a., as the Bible would say, be discerning. In the same way not being anxious or not being fearful is a command, the Bible also commands discernment. To to lack courage is sin. Also, to lack sense is sin. Naivety, just as fear is a sin, so is naivety. The fool, in the book of Proverbs is, is often synonymous with what the text says. And this is a Bible word. So kids, it's a sharp word like knives. Knives aren't bad, but they're sharp. And you don't use them until you're ready and your parents say so. So there are certain words that the word is not inherently a bad word, but it's a sharp word. And sharp words are good at the proper time. But the reason why children are not permitted to use sharp words when they're young is for the same reason that a child alone by themselves isn't permitted to use a knife. Knives aren't bad, but they're dangerous. They need to be used once we're properly trained. So it is with sharp knives and sharp words. So here's the sharp word, stupid. The Bible uses that word. Adults can use it in the right sense. Children should not, just like a knife. But the Bible doesn't just say in the book of Proverbs that there's such a thing as the fool, but they also say that the fool is one who is stupid, that he lacks sense, that that he is he's silly, He's, he's not smart, he's blinded, he's not aware, he's naive. And so it's not just an intellectual lack, but it's actually a moral failure to be undiscerning. If you are undiscerning, you are in sin. Now not all of us will be equally discerning. There is a sense of gifting which comes into the equation. But to be willfully blind is culpability. That's a moral failure, it is a sin. So all that being said, back to the internet jargon, as the kids say, I think every Christian should take a red pill. They should be aware. We do live in a world tarnished by sin and there are nefarious, not, not just imbeciles, but no, there are wicked, sinister people in our world who hate us and who hate our children. But in addition to that red pill, I've noticed that there are many Christians that have followed it, with the chaser of a black pill. And what I mean by the black pill is hopelessness. The red pill is, is good. It's necessary. It may not be fun. It's not, I'm not saying it's fun. It's not pleasant, but, it, but it's, it's beneficial to have your eyes wide open to what's really going on. But then to take the stance of this is what's really going on and therefore we're doomed. That is not the Christian stance. Rather, the Christian should take a red pill, a.k.a. be discerning, but then also a white pill, a.k.a. Christ wins. Christ wins. Now, all this being said, you guys know that I am very passionate and convicted of the post-millennial position, but I want to make a disclaimer today. This is important, because I want to be well-rounded. I want to be fair. The post-millennial There's a few problems, okay, and I'm not talking, I don't have time for, you know, exegetically with post-mill, pre-mill, whatever. I'm I'm just talking about fruit, posture of heart that can come out of it. There's two problems that I want to display. One, the post-millennial who believes most often, post-millennials believe in a longer timeline, that Jesus is going to likely tarry, no man knows the day or the hour. So the pre-mill, the post-mill, none of them are, we're not pretending to put a date on it. But in general, the post-millennial believes that that Jesus is probably going to return a long time from now. That it could be another 500 years, 5,000 years, 50,000 years. For me personally, I, again, I'm not putting a day on it. The, the moment that you guys see me start saying, Jesus is going to come back on a, on a certain day, feel free to leave the church, right? That's that's when, you know, officially I've done it. He's just gone too far. He is, in fact, a heretic, all right? So I don't have a day. But a general assessment, I think of, you know, Exodus 20, uh, that the Lord, you know, that... Um, that he keeps steadfast love to the thousandth generation. In a Jewish tradition, a generation is approximately 40 years. A thousand of those would be about 40,000 years. My assessment, we're about 6,000 years in. So yeah, I think, I'm not saying it will be. Hear me. I'm not saying it will be. But I'm saying I think it is well within biblical parameters to say that Jesus may tarry for 30,000 more years. I'm not saying He will. But I'm just saying that is, I believe, a permissible and plausible biblical position. Okay? Also, in the same sense, I think, under the doctrine of the banner of analogy, it is perfectly permissible, right? A day is like a thousand years. It's perfectly permissible to say, oh, no, I think Jesus is going to return relatively soon. You think 30,000 years? I think maybe more like 30. I think neither one of us can definitively prove the other one wrong. If you're holding it 30 years, though, I will eventually be able to prove you wrong in 30 years. Um, but the point is, if you're wrong, you might be right. But the point is, both are permissible views. Historic premillennialism is a thoroughly orthodox view, and it came on the scene before postmillennialism. Um, Origen would probably be the first guy, or Arrhenius, Um Origin probably would be the first guy that we see this view. And it's approximately 150 years before the postmillennial view, depending on whether or not you count Athanasius as being post-millennial, which I do. So, all that being said, thoroughly orthodox, thoroughly permissible. The problem, not speaking of exegesis, but just fruits of doctrines, theology affects the way we believe. It's not just abstract, it's not just theoretical. What we believe affects what we do. One of the problems with some postmillennials. And I don't believe this is an inherent problem to the postmillennial position. I think this is a twisting and a perversion, taking postmillennialism the wrong way. But one of the problems is that if you believe Jesus is gonna return in 30,000 years, then on Twitter, you can be doing hashtag that postmill, but in your practical day-to-day life, you're not doing anything, right? It's, It's a way of actually being apathetic and cowardly, actually, ironically. So in the name of a victorious hope, Christ conquers. Okay, great. When does he conquer? A long time after I'm dead. And so I don't really need to do anything. Right? You've heard me use this quote. It's a beautiful quote, and I agree with it. But there is a danger if we take it too far. The church, here's the quote, the church lives in the light of eternity, therefore we can afford to be patient. Amen. Let me tell you what that quote doesn't mean. The church lives in the light of eternity. Eternity could be 30,000 years of human history before Christ returns, therefore we can afford to be lethargic. That's not true. That's not true. And so yes, we want a mass outpoint, We want to pray for revival. Mass outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God planting churches Raising children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, raising up pastors and Christians to share the gospel, to preach the truth of God, praying that people might be born again with a new heart, a new nature, that people would be converted to Christ, that there'd be more Christians in our nation to make a difference. And that could take a long time. And we live in light of eternity, the light of eternity, and we can afford to be faithful and patient. Not lazy and patient, but faithful and patient. Also, however, also, we can be strategic. And not through the sword, not through coercion, but through strategy and power. So, not physical literal violence. But foregoing physical literal violence should not be foregoing power. Influence, just like knives are sharp, they're not inherently bad, but they're sharp. Just like the word stupid is not inherently bad, but it's a sharp word. So, too, power is sharp. But it is not inherently evil. Christians must wield power. We just want to wield it well. And so we should pray and do the grassroots, bottom up, the the, the work of an evangelist, fulfilling the Great Commission, all these things, praying that God might send revival. And yet, at the same time, not either or, not one in place of the other, but at the same time, we should also try to wield influence and power. Christians should start businesses and try to be successful and try with that business to do more than merely meet the needs of your family, but to be able to to employ other Christians and leave an inheritance to your children's children. And so too in the realm of of civil affairs and politics, Christians running for local office to legislate God's law and to do so righteously. So the post-millennial position, one of the downsides... Again, it's not inherent to the position, but a twisting, is that in the name of patience, we can be lazy. We can be lazy. Now, all that being said, here's the deal. Getting down to brass tacks. If you are premillennial, you believe, you typically, not everyone does, but typically, if you're premillennial, you believe that the general trajectory of human history will be a downward moral spiral, and if you're a post-millennial, you believe the general trajectory of human history will be an upward moral spiral. However, I want to be fair and steel man both positions. If you're a post-mill and think we're on the up and up, the post-millennial still believes that there can be some serious dips along the way. It's not a perfect steady incline, but just like the stock market, generally up over the last hundred years, but some pretty big dips along the way. And depending what generation you are, and when you were born, and when you were reaching retiring age, it could destroy you. The S&P 500 could betray you, depending on timing, but generally up, but with some significant Dips. Well, let's be fair for a moment. The premillennial believes generally down, but they believe there can be some spikes. And so, here's the deal. I have more in common with the premillennial who believes that by God's grace, we can fight with courage and that the next 20, 30, 40 years, this generation might be a spike season than I do with a postmillennial Who is completely black pilled and and is preaching about the hashtag datpostmill victorious rule and reign of Christ that's gonna happen 30 years after he's dead? It's not helpful. That may be true, but here's the deal we don't know. We're not omniscient. We don't know the day or the hour Christ returns, and we also don't know for each generation whether it's a spike or whether it's a dip. So what do we do? We pray for spikes. And we work the same way that we pray. We work with a real, a real hope, a real belief that things could get better and that God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, that our work actually works, that it makes a difference in the world. So, all that being said, I've realized that both the post mail and the pre-mill position have some serious drawbacks. The post mail will say, Christ wins, but they can easily say 30 years from now, 30,000 years from now, and then just be lazy, and be a warrior on Twitter, but not really do anything practical in their life. And the pre-mill, here's the problem with them, they can take the red pill every single day but also take a black pill along with it. And what I've noticed in terms of popularity, if I was just trying to grow a large church, the red pill, white pill combo and the sense of urgency, a sprinkle of urgency on top, as a cherry on top, that is not a marketable position. It's not. Like some churches that are growing by leaps and bounds right now are the ones who say, we see behind the veil the Wizard of Oz pulling the levers, and we'll tell you about this, and we'll tell you about that. We're discerning, we're wise, we're not naive, uh, but also we know we're not gonna win. That is very popular. I have had a lot of people, I'm not saying you guys, I'm not saying here at the church, but online, a lot of people will come in to my preaching, my ministry, and those kinds of things by the grace of and what appears appeals to them is an initial attraction. And the initial attraction is, hey, I bet you that um, a lot of people in this church aren't vaccinated. And I like that. And hey, that guy called out Fauci. I like that. Hey, and he took a stand against BLM. I like that. Hey, he's hashtag based. I like that. And then they find out I'm post-millennial and that I think we're going to win. I don't like that. Because, see, it's easy to be red-pilled and not have any more obligation to do anything about it. That is a popular position right now. You just have to recognize it for what it is. A popular position right now within evangelicalism and outside of the church, just within the culture at large, is to be conservative and discerningly conservative, to see, right, to, to brag about how we see behind the veil. We know all the things, but we also know that the end is nigh, and that God has ordained that things will get worse and worse until Christ returns. It is not as popular, I don't believe, to believe that, that you know, to have the red pill see behind the veil, notice all the problems, and to say, and we're going to beat them. Now, it is popular to say, we'll beat them 30,000 years from now. So the post mill that's, we win. We see all the bad stuff. The red pill's there, but the white pill, but you don't get to take the white pill for 30,000 years that's popular. And the pre-mill, red pill only, but no white pill, we don't win, that's popular. What's not popular right now, what's not popular, is to say, we see behind the veil, and we're going to do something about it, And we can make a difference by God's grace. We can't guarantee it. We're not omniscient. God doesn't owe us a thing. We're not entitled. But we're going to work, and we're going to believe, and we're going to hope, not just for 30,000 years from now, but for 30 years from now, that in this generation, in my generation, that we're going by the grace of God to make a difference, and we're going to act like it. We're going to work towards it. And if everything decays, it's going to come over our dead body. And you can do that as a post mill with a red pill and a immediate white pill, and you can do that as a pre-mill, believing that the trajectory is ultimately down, but working towards, believing towards, praying towards a 40-year spike on the way. Red pill, white pill. And in my assessment, when we're getting down to the lowest common denominator in the church, when we're thinking, who can we partner with, where do we draw ties, where do we link arms, I I think that's where it is. It's um, who sees the problem, And who believes that by God's grace, maybe we can change it. And I think that's ultimately, ultimately that's the kind of church that I want us by God's grace to be. That's what I want us to be working towards and by God's grace we are. You guys are very involved in the culture, in politics and all these things. And I believe that that is an incredible blessing to our children and our future children's children, and most importantly, it pleases the Lord. I think it's one of the best ways that we can practically obey Christ's commandment to love our neighbor, but I just want you to know, it won't be super popular. There will be people, not, not pointing at anybody in specific, but in general, there will be people who will join our community, because they'll like the red pill aspect. They'll like, oh, you see what I see, you watch that documentary too, nice. All right, you're on, oh, you're on the evangelical dark web? Nice, me too. Oh, I saw that, uh-huh. You saw that, uh-huh, yeah, all right. But then they'll find out that we believe we could do something about it. And they'll leave. And they'll find a pre church. You know why? Because work is hard. There's a lot of people right now, seeing is fun. Working is hard. And there are pre guys who want to see, but don't want to work. And to be fair, I think I've been fair today. There are post-mill guys who want to see, but also they believe that the 17th generation of their posterity can do the work. So both can fail. All right. Let's work. Let's pray. Let's work and believe that God blesses our work. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that, um, that the promise that was given to Joshua by Jesus was that the city was already given over. It was as good as done. It had already been handed over to Israel. And that Joshua believed. That he believed. And he didn't just believe that it was a far off blessing that eventually would be fulfilled, but that it was something that they were going to pursue right then and there. That For seven days, even though it didn't make sense the strategy, but for seven days, they were going to march and walk and pray and then eventually shout, trusting that you had promised a victory and that it would come about through their faithful obedience and that it would happen in their lifetime. We know that you don't owe this to us and we know that it may and may not happen, but Lord, I pray that you would give us faith to believe that it could happen And to believe that you, either way, the outcome belongs to you, the results belong to you, but obedience is vital. I pray, Lord, that you would put it in our hearts, in our spirits, that regardless of what you choose to do in terms of the fruit, that we would choose to practically live a life working towards, preaching towards, praying towards, parenting towards a victory, a victory that is soon not just in the far off distance, but a victory here and now that glorifies you and that also is one of the most practically loving things we can do for our image-bearing neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.